Welcome to the morning kick. Sorry if it isn't morning where you are, but our motto is it's morning somewhere. Inflation is the topic of the day because as with past updates, the topic hit my radar two to three times in interesting ways in a short window of time. First, The Economist had some news this weekend on our developing stories in Ukraine and South Korea. Ukraine is the cover story for The Economist. The U.S. is preparing sanctions already. It's tense. I have no probability updates, but check out The Economist. Also in there, South Korean chipmaker Samsung was called out for having its best quarter ever. In the economy, it was noted, grew 4% in 2021, the fastest pace in 11 years. There are also a couple of larger articles in The Economist this weekend on the global chip market. It's starting to read like domestic chip production today is like the steel of 50 to 100 years ago, a matter of national security. Check out The Economist if you get a chance. Now to inflation, which came up first because of another of my favorite nations to follow, Norway, is in the news again. If you remember learning about Norway's trillion-dollar oil fund, sometimes called a sovereign wealth fund by outsiders, and the largest of its kind in the world, in our interview with Robin Wigglesworth, it's now $1.3 trillion, so sorry for shortchanging it. And the CEO of the oil fund came out as a team leader for Team Permanent, he calls himself, as it relates to inflation and whether it's transitory or not. I've been short to medium term mellow about inflation for reasons I'll go over, largely because I can't forecast it. But speaking of Robin Wigglesworth, he posted on Twitter, I can't get over how after three decades of disinflation, one year of high single digit price increases causes people to lose their shit comprehensively. Brilliant as always. And I'm more than sympathetic to that view. But the CEO of Norway's oil fund coming out and saying it's not a problem down the road, it's here now and it's here to stay has me revisiting that mellow view. And remember those terms Robin used, disinflation and price increases. Those distinctions come up in a minute. That mellow thesis isn't that I have a great handle on what causes inflation or an inflation forecast. It's not comfort in any way. It's just the opposite. It's because I don't know. And I really don't think anyone else does either, how to properly measure and forecast inflation. And that's why I've never focused on real returns. That is returns after inflation. First of all, because if nominal returns aren't there, the net returns won't be either. Second, I can't forecast inflation, not yet anyway. So I'll start with a quote from a book I've been reading by Phil Huber called The Allocator's Edge. I was hoping to interview Phil, but he hasn't gotten back to me, so I'll probably just do a book review later in the week. But this one paragraph on inflation really resonated with me. He says about inflation, Inflation is one of the most talked about yet least understood concepts in financial markets and macroeconomics. It's a phenomenon we debate ad nauseum, with very little evidence and knowledge of how and when it will manifest. Sure, we can explain and identify it ex post, but that's not much use. Amen. Why is it so difficult to forecast? Let's start with the word inflation and then how difficult its very measurement is to understand. When prices go down, we have two distinct terms for describing the dynamic, disinflation and deflation. Perfect. Disinflation is a decline in prices, which could come from increased competition locally, technological developments, Globalization, which is just another form of competition. It can be disruptive to the competitive dynamic, but a windfall to consumers. So no big deal. Now, deflation is the broad-based decline in prices that stops people from spending, historically simultaneous with a contraction in money supply and subsequent economic activity. Unequivocally bad. Now, we don't have the same choice word options for when prices rise. Every price increase anywhere is tagged with the scarlet letter I. So let's do it ourselves. Let's differentiate. Inflation is as persistent and broad-based on the upside as deflation is on the downside. Your dollar buys less everywhere. Your currency is worth less. 
A simple price increase due to supply shocks, for example, is different. If you're not sure if a price increase is inflation, ask yourself if the Federal Reserve should raise interest rates as a response. For instance, there's a drought in the Midwest. It devastates the corn crop. Beef prices skyrocket. Should the Fed raise rates? A container ship full of semiconductors from South Korea sinks to the bottom of the Pacific en route to the U.S., halting manufacturing of new cell phones and automobiles, so prices for phones and cars skyrocket. Should the Fed raise rates? Well, no, in both cases. Now we've got some differentiated terms to work with. Let's get to measurement. Well, you've got a lot of choices. CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Headline, core, trimmed mean, two years. PCE. Let's just talk about CPI. First, what goes into the basket changes over history. Slowly, maybe, but it does change. More importantly, what goes into the basket is subject to a bunch of human adjustments called hedonics, or quality adjustments. For instance, a car today has a lot more tech than it did 12 years ago. Economists make adjustments for that. That's an easy one. But there are hedonic adjustments for crazy things, from men's suits to women's outerwear. By the way, these adjustments could be overstating or understating whatever real inflation is. Again, if there is such a thing. I have no idea. Lastly, the substitution effect is still alive and well. Beef prices go up, I eat chicken. Chicken prices go up, I eat fish. Fish goes up, I eat pasta. If it's capital I inflation, your dollar's worth less everywhere. But what about wage increases? That's all over the news. The CEO of the Norway Oil Fund brought it up in making his case. Well, rising wages for the bottom half of income earners, just to draw a line and make a point, seems like a good thing. Not out of a populist view, but because I think it makes for a more durable economic expansion than rising wages for folks that are already spending all they want. Those folks just save the excess. But are rising wages inflationary? Well, it could make prices go up. It's a function of whether a company has the pricing power, the market position strength to pass on those higher wage costs to consumers in the form of higher prices. I didn't check for this morning update, but our economy feels top-heavy, meaning there are a lot of big companies at the top of a lot of industries with big market share and therefore the power to pass on rising costs. I don't know. The alternative is lower margins or maybe more robots. But again, with capital I inflation, everyone passes it on and your dollar buys less. But if everyone's getting wage increases and lockstep with inflation, the train keeps barreling down the tracks. I know, not terribly helpful. Which gets to a little analogy I came up with 20 years ago that historically speaking, inflation is like water leaking through your roof. It starts in the attic, which in this analogy is the 70s, relatively closed economy, it's too much money chasing too few goods, the quantitative theory of money. There were supply shocks in the 70s that didn't help policy mistakes, but we'll keep it simple. Then the water keeps following gravity down to the main floor. That's the 80s, 90s, and aughts. Relatively open economy, globalization creates competition, any excess money seemed to flow into assets, both paper, like stocks and bonds, and hard assets like real estate. The basement in this story is the currency. The buck stops there. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But Think about your history of hyperinflationary events from South America to post-World War I Germany. The currency becomes worth less every day. That's the measurement of inflation. Inflation was X percent a day. That's the devaluation rate of the currency. What's the U.S. dollar done in the last 12 months? It's up a fair bit. But this story doesn't give you a clear answer either because foreign exchange is the ultimate relative game. And maybe the U.S. dollar is just the least shitty house in a bad neighborhood. But I don't know. Looking back, when you combine both monetary and fiscal policy since March of 2020, it does feel like the U.S. has been the most profligate. Time will tell, and maybe not that much time. And so it's the currency I'm watching near term. The U.S. dollar is an asset with a fair bit of momentum in it. If it starts going up, it'll continue to go up for longer than you think, which is happening now. 
But if it gets some momentum to the downside, that'll last a while too. Longer term, there are other concerns like what the Fed thinks the neutral rate of interest is and what that really might be. So you conclude you want to invest with an eye towards inflation. Should be easy, right? You can look it up, see what's worked historically during bouts of inflation. But be warned, what you're going to see is going to make your head hurt. Inflation regimes, the strategists call them, differentiating between low and rising prices, high and rising prices, high and falling prices. Then there are breakdowns on what works if inflation is 2 to 3%, 3 to 6%, or over 6%. Expected inflation versus unexpected inflation. Can you imagine trying to forecast into the future at that level of specificity something I can't tell you how to measure today? Exactly. So let's keep it simple. Going back to Robin Wigglesworth's comment about having been through decades of disinflation and adding in that the U.S. has had trouble maintaining the Fed's target of 2% inflation. If inflation anchors north of 3%, it's probably not stopping there, and the Fed's target for a neutral rate in the 2% seems pretty low. And that's where trouble could start. Not a forecast, just a thought. What has worked historically when prices are rising at more than an ideal pace? Real assets, real estate, and infrastructure, and commodities. Commodities seem easy at first because, going back to our currency discussion, commodities are priced in U.S. dollars on the world market. So when the U.S. dollar falls, all other things being equal, commodities rise in price to the U.S. investor. But even that's not that simple. Do you buy the actual commodity? Copper or aluminum, say? Be careful about investments that are structured through derivatives like futures. They lose value every day due to what's called time decay. Do you buy the miners? Maybe. But a mining company can sell production forward at a price that ends up looking unfavorable in a bull commodity market, capping your participation. There are only two investable categories that I know of that have outperformed the S&P 500 the last 50 to 100 years, subject to the availability of data. One is small cap companies, and the other is the aforementioned real estate, specifically what are called equity REITs. Now, I know if you have a home, it's probably your biggest asset, but maybe it isn't. Either way, just consider all the different niches within real estate. There's commercial real estate, cell towers, storage REITs, healthcare REITs, data centers, multifamily, not to mention farmland and timber. It's massive globally, and REITs, I think, are only 3% of the S&P 500. I don't hedge for hedging's sake. I don't believe in it. Hedges cost you return over time, plain and simple. But if you can invest in a sector with a secular wind at its back that also gives you a free call option against tail risk, like runaway inflation, that's interesting to me. Some of the base metals are benefiting from new sources of demand, like alternative energy development. In real estate, as Will Rogers said, they're not making more of it. That's all. It's worth doing some work on. If I get this book review out on Allocator's Edge, it'll get more into the class of alternative investments and what they can do for you in turbulent times with already low expected returns. Email me with other questions, things you want to hear about. John at ktdpod.com, J-O-H-N at ktdpod.com. On the inflation front, after a couple books in front of it, I'm going to get to The Great Wave by David Hackett Fisher, Price Revolutions in the Rhythm of History. Until then, have a great day.